going to ask you to open your Bibles today to the Epistle of Titus, the Epistle of Titus, and we will be in chapter 2 in Titus. I love this, personally, I love this little epistle. It's, uh, it is something that is uh, a real blessing. The world always is selling that the new year there's hope, right? The world will say, well, it's another day of life. You have all these other different things. You know, it, it brings new opportunities. But the hope of the world, as you'll see, is temporal. You're never going to find true contentment in the world, especially if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, right? The hope of the world is temporal. And we take a look at the world and we take a look at the landscapes that we're seeing and we're seeing that so many things are changing so dynamically and so quickly and it doesn't appear that they're changing for the better, does it? As a matter of fact, as a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes our spirits are vexed. You know, we're vexed at what we see in the unrighteousness taking place in our nation today. Seems like subjectivism, relativism, humanism, every ism you could think of seems to dominate the landscape. And for those of us who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, those of us who hold to the word of God being the objective truth, well, it makes it a little bit more difficult for us. Now, let me state very clearly, I'm not afraid that the church is going to disappear from the face of the earth, right? God always has his witness, and God's plan will unfold according to his will and his word. So it's never going to be a situation where things are going to just disappear. We're going to vanish from the face of the earth. You know, I hear some Christian pundits oftentimes speaking about that many times as if they're saying, Oh, my Lord, I'm so concerned. I'm so concerned that, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. God will have his witness. And whether they be many or whether they be few, God will always have his witness to the gospel. And so as we see, and that's the, by the way, that's the blessing of serving a sovereign and a living God. He is sovereign. He never loses control. He does not panic. He doesn't sit on the throne of heaven and an angel rushes in and say, Father, do you know that the Russians invaded the Ukraine? And he goes, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Everything, as Nebuchadnezzar said, works according to the counsel of his will. And there is no one who can say to him, what hast thou done? Or who could ward off his hand? Nobody could stay his hand from acting. And so that would say to us as believers entering 2023 that God has sovereignly declared and ordained that we are alive at this time. And God has placed us, I'm sorry, that's my granddaughter, so I apologize for that. But God has placed us right at this time in history. So the question for us becomes this. How do we live righteously 
in an unrighteous world? That's the question for us as believers in Christ. How do we live righteously in an unrighteous world? And of course, all answers come from the Word of God, which is why we're going to be looking at Paul's epistle to Titus today. And it is my hope today, it's my hope, and it's my intent that regardless of the circumstances of life that we are facing, that we can have hope for the upcoming year. And we're going to define what that hope is. But there's three facets of this hope that we're going to take a look at today. Number one, we can have hope in the power of our salvation. In the power of our salvation. Secondly, we can have hope in our deliverance from sin. And thirdly, we can have hope in the promise of Christ's return. So turn with me to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The verse reads, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, just a little bit of background, a little bit of historical background on Titus. Titus was a Gentile convert of Paul. And he was a member of Paul's team, of his entourage. Titus, along with Timothy, and a few others. This epistle seems to be written about 64 to 65 A.D. This would be right before Paul's death at the hands of Nero. So he's writing him a letter. And Titus is mentioned about 14 times in the New Testament. He was converted by Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. Titus accompanied Paul to the Jerusalem council, you might remember in Acts chapter 15. And Titus was also a representative to the church at Corinth, right? So it's just a little bit on who Titus is. Now, the epistle is being written, Paul is writing Titus this letter, primarily as Titus was overseeing the churches in Crete. Now, Crete itself was a pagan island. I really want to impress this upon, upon us today. They worshipped not only Roman gods, they worshipped Greek gods, they worshipped gods of their own making. Now, you got to understand this. Christians were an extreme minority. So the dominant culture around was pagan. The dominant influence around was pagan. And here come some of these Gentile converts speaking of one God, salvation in one God, one true living God, Speaking of, we don't worship idols, tear down the idols, we want nothing to do with idols. 
tearing down superstitions and myths. And I want you to know that it was not well received. Crete is no different than some of the other places like Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Laodicea, some of the other places we see, Corinth, which were also extremely infiltrated pagan societies with an antagonism toward Christians. We look at the landscape in America today and we fret. We go, oh, we're losing religious liberties. We're losing religious liberties. People are encroaching on our our First Amendment rights. Well, do you know that that's the norm for most of the world? Do you know that that was unique for the most part to America and some of the Western cultures? But the history of the church, the history of the biblical Christian church is that it persevered through the antagonism. It persevered through the persecution. It persevered through through and now in this day and age in January 1st 2023 we are witnesses to a pagan culture and we witness the gospel of Jesus Christ and by and large most people don't want to hear it they don't want to hear it so the reason i point this out is that we are not in a unique situation. Rather, we are in a situation that our brothers and sisters in the faith have gone through, persevered through, died, shed blood for, bearing a witness. As a matter of fact, we're here because of them. As the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So Paul writes Titus, and tells Titus, this is how the church ought to be. This is how elders should be. This is how women should be in the church. And this is how you should live in a culture that you find ourselves. So what we want to do today is we want to take a look at these three principles as to how we should live in a similar culture. Let's look at the first principle. Hope in the power of our salvation. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Paul tells Titus, how do we live righteously in an unrighteous world? Well, he states it begins with the grace of God, the favor of God. That Greek word there is the charis, the charis of God. That means that God is favorably disposed to those whom he loves. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are saved today, God is favorably disposed toward you. He showers you with his favor. He gives you his benevolence. Now, it doesn't mean that everything goes honky-dory, does it? It doesn't mean that everything goes right. God is favorable even in trial, even in circumstances, even in opportunities that seem to crush us. God's favor is still toward the believer. 
The favor of God brings salvation. And salvation is rescue from imminent peril. That's what that word means. We're rescued from imminent peril. And deliverance, our deliverance is not only from original sin, but our deliverance is given, is provided in the new life that Christ provides us. Everything in the Christian world, by the way, rises and falls on our salvation. Because our salvation is so overwhelming. It's so complete. And so Paul expounds upon this a a little bit more in Titus chapter 3. Look over to Titus chapter 3 for a quick moment. Particularly for context, verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4 and 5 of Titus 3, what Paul says. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. I want to point out a few important terms here that Paul uses here in Titus chapter 3. Number one, notice the term, He saved us. Paul states that this is a work of grace. This work of grace is a unilateral work of grace by God alone. And it is completed by God alone. This favor toward those whom God loves is a unilateral act of God. Now when you let that settle in, that's a very humbling thought. There's no boasting in that. That God loved me to such an extent that God's favor would be disposed toward me. And Paul says here in verse 5, it's evident in the next statement in this verse. Notice what Paul says. I'm going to show you how unilateral this is. Notice what he says. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Paul clarifies that this act of grace by God is not in response to anything good within us or our attempts at righteousness. Rather, it is His infinite grace showered upon us. And he goes on. Look at the next statement. He says, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. That's a great word. That's God's compassion. God's compassion toward us. Right? God has towards sinners. And this act of God's grace was made according to His mercy, and this mercy, like all other acts of God, was a unilateral act of God and is demonstrated. Now, here's what I want you to get. It is demonstrated by the next phrase. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. Here it is, the new birth. It wasn't simply that God had mercy, forgave all your sins, forgave all your transgressions, but God took it to a next step. God not only did that, but He washed us, right? He cleansed us, but He regenerated us. And therein is the new life in Christ. See, the new life 
is not just positional, meaning it's not simply a doctrinal truth, but it is a practical truth of God. If you are in Christ, you have new life in Christ. Paul put it to the Corinthians this way. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All of the old things have passed away, and behold, what? Everything has become new. That is not merely positional. That is practical. And I know that many of you have a testimony that prior to Christ, you used to do this, you used to do that, you used to do the other thing, but what happened? God washed you. God cleansed you. God gave you a new life, and you now have victory over the things that used to keep you bound. In short, God's mercy is evident in the new birth. Listen, there's a popular theology out there today that says that you know, you could be saved, and that's the only thing that matters. God doesn't do anything new with you. That's, that's, that's baloney. That's baloney. If God saved you, you have been made new. If God saved you, you've been given a new heart. You've been given new desires. If God saved you, then the Word of God is indeed true, that behold, everything has become new. So as we take a look at this year... And as we look at 2023, and we sit on the verge of a new year, none of us know what the new year is going to bring. We can live righteously in an unrighteous world because of the hope of our salvation, because Christ has granted us new life in Him. Let's look at the second principle, principle number two. We have hope in our salvation. We have hope in our deliverance from the power of sin. Look at verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Notice it began, this grace of God, the salvation of God that we've been talking about, the transforming power of the new birth, the new life, the power of sin is broken. It's broken. And not only is it broken, but God equips us to live and triumph over sin. He equips us to be able to live righteously. The believer is constantly being separated day by day, day by day, and conformed into the image of Christ. Look at verses 11 through 13 as in our text. This is all one continuous thought. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul uses this term here, instructing us. And that term is the same term you would use to instruct a child. Right? It is that methodical way of instructing a child, of teaching a child something new. 
Paul contends that the grace of God involves all facets of training, instruction, reinforcement, and discipline for a very specific purpose. In Philippians 1, you don't have to turn there, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this as he elaborates on that purpose. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How should the Christian live? in an unrighteous world. Well, Paul says there in Philippians, we approve the things that are excellent. You look at the world today, there doesn't appear to be much excellence in the world. There doesn't appear to be much that we can approve for. But we are to live, as Paul says, sincere and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. And we are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Back in Titus chapter 2, look at verse 12 again. He instructs us to deny ungodliness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, to be a Christian is not only to believe the teaching of Christ and to practice it, it is not only to try and follow the pattern and the example of Christ, It is to be so vitally related to Christ that his life and his power are working in us. It is to be in Christ. It is for Christ to be in us. We are to be transformed. Christ in us. Christ through us. All things which is why the Apostle Paul could say, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. So the Apostle Paul says, well, what is this victory? What is this power? What does this hope look like? Look at verse 11 again. First he tells us, deny ungodliness. And that is to say no. That literally means to say no to irreverence, Toward God. You just have to put on your TV and you will get all the irreverence toward God that you could think of. You just have to walk into certain stores. You just have to do some of these other different, go to some of the other different places and, and you will see irreverence toward God. I go to the beach with my wife and and we go to the beach, and all you see is a reverence toward God. How do we live righteously in an unrighteous day and age? The first thing we need to do is to deny ungodliness. To deny ungodliness. And that term goes beyond it. It means to boldly deny ungodliness. That means that we as believers become countercultural. We become countercultural. Because we do not conform to the world nor the world's standards. The second term he sells us there in verse 12. He says to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now this is an area that I personally believe 
that many Christians get crossed up. We get crossed up in that we see so many things that the world offers that we want some of that which the world offers. Worldly desires are worldly passions. Things that the world honors, reveres, and abides within. And these passions, listen, let me be clear. These passions should never, ever consume the believer. They should never consume the believer. Matter of fact, Paul moves from the negative to the positive here in this verse. He says, to deny worldly desires, and here are some of the positives, to live sensibly. That word means to live soberly, to live circumspect. There is a direct connection to living sensibly and living within the power of God. So Paul tells us to live, power, uh, to live in the power of God. <clears throat> And this is the life of faith. That we're not caught up in the world. We're not given to the world's excesses. The believer's focus is on pleasing God and living the will of God. Now, when one is walking in faith and in the Holy Spirit, our focus should move from being self-absorbed to God-absorbed. We should move from being self-absorbed to being God absorb. And we are to live righteously. And that righteously means that we are to live judicially approved by God. Imagine that, that our conduct, our character, and all these things are to live approved by God. Living according to His will and living according to His word. And this involves living a life that reflects the righteousness of God, of the God who has indeed transformed us. Right? And so we come to that place where the old things have passed away, and behold, everything has become new. Righteous living, let me share with you, righteous living is the result of inward godliness. What you sow on the inside will manifest on the outside. So just think about it for a moment. If what you sow on the inside are worldly passions and worldly desires, the manifestation of that will come outward. But if what you sow on the inside are the things of God, the Word of God, the worship of God, then what will come out will be the transforming power of God. And let me add another point. Righteous living should never cause our affection for Christ to diminish or to wane. Complacency is not a characteristic of living right with Christ. Our desire should be that Christ should always be honored. Our passions for Christ should always be fiery hot and fueled with passion for Him, not with dull routine. We need to desire God. We need to desire more of God. There is never an end to the increase that we find within Christ. We need to pursue 
Our pursuit needs to be vigorous. And do we not need the Lord more than ever in this day and age? So entering 2023 because of the new birth, because Christ has given us power over sin, we have hope in our deliverance from the power of sin. Let's look at principle number three. Hope in the assurance of Christ's return. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of hope that is not something of wishful thinking. You know, we use that term today. Well, I, I hope it's going to be a good day, right? There is no confidence in that hope. That hope basically refers to a wishful thought. Boy, I hope nothing goes wrong today. But that's not the hope that Paul writes of. That's not Christian hope. When I talk about that we can have a hope entering 2023, I talk about a hope that is built on confidence, a hope that's built on assurance, a hope that is built on Christ. Actually, the Greek word there means, properly it means expectation. You have an expectation. An expectation is born from a certainty. So you have a certainty. The Christian hope is a hope of certainty. And when I speak that we can have hope in a new year, I refer specifically to that expectation that our hope is rooted and grounded in God and in Christ Jesus. Listen, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the sensible, righteous, godly living is based on the certainty of hope. And we find hope in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we not? Now listen, I want to share something with you. Our hope in the return of Jesus Christ is not that we put our hands up, sit back and say, I'm just waiting for the Lord to come. That doesn't show certainty or hope. We are to labor until he comes. We are to work until he comes. We are to encourage until he comes. We are to serve until he comes. And we are to be found as laborers when the Lord comes. Not as spectators as the Lord comes. Turn in your Bibles real quick. Paul gives a good definition of this over in Philippians chapter 3. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this. For our citizenship citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul cast his expectation, his hope, on the future return of Jesus Christ. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes this, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared yet as what we shall be. And we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
Is that not beautiful? That when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. And I love what He says there. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. This is the hope of the expectation of the return of our Lord. And in light of this blessed hope, we can live in this world circumspect, righteously, godly, drawing men and women to Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How do you live righteously in an unrighteous world? By getting rid of every defilement. Of all the things that weigh us down. You know, it breaks my heart. I see so many times that it just seems so many people put their faith and confidence in politics or in a particular election or in a particular candidate. And you, and you hear the banter going back. This guy's going to do this. This one's going to do that. That one's this. Hey, let me tell you something. Nobody's going to fix this. Our hope as believers, is not in a party, it's not in a candidate, it's not in a system of government. Our hope is completely and wholly in Jesus Christ. And when He comes again, He will indeed set the record straight. As the world seems to decay among us, as each day appears to get worse and worse, we don't have to fret. Do you believe that? I mean, honestly, do you honestly believe that? Do you honestly believe that God has put you right here at this point in time? That you're not here by accident? You're not here by coincidence? By the way, there is no coincidence in the kingdom of God. Everything is intentional. Everything is purposeful. By God. And so he has put us here in this place. And I'll even take that down one step, one step below that. He has put us here in this church at this particular time, in this particular location, with everybody in this body. He has united us together, put us here one to another to minister, to labor, to love one another. And he's given us broader mandates, as I said at the very beginning. A broader mandate to reach our Jerusalem. A broader mandate to be people of the gospel, boldly proclaiming the word of truth. By the way, you're going to boldly proclaim it, and 99.9% of the people are going to reject it. That's no reason not to proclaim it. We continue to proclaim we bear the reproach of Christ. We bear the ridicule. We bear the embarrassment. We bear the laughter. But we proclaim Him. And we continue to march on as those who had gone before us, proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week in our Christmas service, I preached from Luke 2.20, right? When... The shepherds had left and they went back 
glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, all they had heard, and all that had been told to them. And you don't see anything that follows that that says, and then in Bethlehem there was a great revival. And you have to wonder how many people did the shepherds go back and say, let me tell you, I found the Messiah. It's a child in a manger. I found them there. And, and the people said, what are, you, what, what are you, nuts? And how many people went out and preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead and after he ascended into heaven and preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And what did the crowd say? They said, this is ridiculous babble. Remember Paul on Mars Hill in Athens when he preached the resurrection of the dead? He's preaching, he's, he's preaching along, along, and they go, hmm, this guy has something to say. This guy has, and then he speaks of the resurrection of the dead. And what do they do? It's foolishness. They lost me when he started talking about people being raised from the dead. God has placed us here in a cynical society. And God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You realize that? That if you are in Christ, you're a fool for Him? I love being counted a fool for Christ. But He has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we go forth with that message, proclaiming salvation. That's the message of hope for a new year. And the world needs it desperately. And I'll say something else. The church needs it desperately. We need to be men and women who have an assurance of Christ's return and therefore that assurance gives us hope. In Christ. As we enter the new year, we have a hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. And it's pretty cool because Paul closes with this in Titus chapter 4. Turn over there. Verse 10. I mean, Titus chapter 3, verse 10. He says, for it is this for we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. Paul speaks of a hope that is focused and secured, that is laser-locked on Christ. Listen, as believers, we don't have to grow frustrated at what we see in front of us. We do not have to become fatalistic or depressed. Our salvation in Christ has equipped us. It has equipped us to live righteously in an unrighteous world. Always remember, we have hope in the power of our salvation. We have hope in our deliverance from the power of sin. And we have hope in the assurance of Christ's return. Now, what is the key to all of this? The key to all of this is are you saved? Are you in Christ? Have you come to Christ in repentance and faith? Not by tradition. Not by rote. Not by convenience. 
not based on your good deeds, but have you come to Christ and thrown yourself on the mercy and the grace of Christ? If you haven't done that, listen, there's no stronger message that I can convey to you than to come to Christ and be saved. What does that mean? That means if you confess your sin and you turn from your sin, that God will be faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To give you new birth, as Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To come and leave the world behind and leave everything that you put your trust in, including your good works, your intentions, your motivations, your ethics, your morals, leave it all behind. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, lay it down and say, Father, I come with nothing but sin. Forgive me of my sin. God, save me, lest I die. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.